Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Gerald Posner, author of Pharma. First, wanted to let you know that you can hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast through booksonpod.com. And for the latest on this program, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BooksOnPod. This is David Hertzberg, author of White Market Drugs, Big Pharma, and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. And I just had a terrific conversation with Trey about white market drugs, and I hope you'll give it a listen. Hello, readers. Gerald Posner is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. His most recent book is Another Gem. It's called Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Gerald, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Good, uh, Trey. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate to be able to come on your podcast with the the great books you cover and have a chance to talk to you a little in-depth about pharma. I really appreciate it. Well, you've written a lot of great books, obviously, throughout your life, and this is another gem of a book. It's all about the history of pharma with a heavy emphasis on the last, let's say, 70 or 80 years or so. But the American pharmaceutical industry really got going in the late 1840s. Why did it start then, and just how lawless was this industry through the end of that century? Yeah, you know, it's fantastic because I didn't really know the the origins at all until I started to do research for the book. And I was quite surprised to find out, as you said, it happens in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, there, There's a tremendous demand uh, for, for morphine and painkillers, uh, largely on the battlefield of the Civil War. And there's a lack, a shortage of good quality morphine in manufacturers that can produce it. So a number of people that later became brand names for big companies like a couple of German cousins in Brooklyn, the Pfizer brothers, people like a former union sergeant who had been in the war, Eli Lilly, and later uh, Squibb. We find them coming in in real numbers, I think, in this period in the mid-1800s into what you said a moment ago, a lawless period. Lawless in the sense that there were no laws, regulations, or anything else to control drugs. And so it was the what I call the Wild West days, um, the cocaine cowboy days, as they like to say here in Miami, <laughs> where I live, of uh, pharmaceuticals, and that everything went. It was legal to to mix cocaine and morphine and derivatives of opioids uh, into different products with alcohol pictures. Um, actually, Bayer came up, uh, Bayer, the great German pharmaceutical company, branded the name heroin and marketed initially as a relief for morphine addiction, hard to imagine. And uh, there was a boom in all of these drugs that were marketed for everything as cure-all, snake oil salesmen in many ways, no rules about what they had to treat, no rules about safety, no rules about labeling. And in this world, uh, it led to all types of problems from addictions to overdoses to, to deaths of people with untested different remedies that proved to be fatal. And it wasn't until the 20th century, in the early part of the 20th century, that finally the federal government started to wake up and said, we've got to do something about this. And they did so with the Food and Drug Act of 1906. You know, it's funny, the processed food business was also operating pretty nefariously and staking its claim on consumers in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Who was Harvey Washington Wiley, and what exactly did his Food and Drug Act do starting in 1906? 
Yeah, you know, he's a fascinating character. And uh, Harvey Washington Wiley is one of these people that and people have written actually full biographies about him. And he's the son of this revivalist Christian preacher, comes from a very spare and poor household uh, in the Midwest and and comes out as sort of as a crusader saying, I'm going to change things. And he goes to work for the Bureau of Chemistry in Washington, which is this backwater little division that nobody pays much attention to. And his crusade is actually, as you said, to stop the adulterant and the preservatives and everything else that's used in food at the time that he thought was dangerous. So he starts what becomes, I guess, the first live reality show. He's far ahead of his time. The reality show turned out to be a group of volunteers for the Poison Squad. Um, who And these volunteers uh, all dressed up in formal wear every night, and they would be served an assortment of food with different preservatives and and different alkaloids in it that Wiley wanted to test on his human subjects. And he'd prepare the meals themselves in the Bureau of Chemistry, and over a period of time, he learned what was safe and what wasn't, and why formaldehyde shouldn't be used as a preservative, and what was dangerous about mixing chalk into milk, and a whole series of things today we take as common sense. And it actually turns out that he got a number of attempts to pass a bill on pure food that failed. And then in 1905, a book came out from Upton Sinclair that was really a novel. uh, But that novel, The Jungle, had 15 stomach-wrenching pages about conditions in meatpacking houses in Chicago. And it sort of made the American public come alive to the idea of how dangerous food was. And Wiley also included at the urging of a lot of other public health advocates, drugs as well. So the Pure Food and Drug Act, as you say, finally gets passed in 1906. And you think to yourself, okay, great. Now some sanity. We had nothing going on before. No prescriptions required. Anybody over the age of 18 could walk into a store and buy any of the remedies that included cocaine, morphine, heroin, etc. As a matter of fact, the Amazon of its day, which was Sears and Roebuck, the Sears and Roebuck catalog, the largest catalog that people ordered from, for $1.50, you could order in a small syringe that was then with, packed with a pure amount of cocaine for injecting cocaine. So this is the world that the 1906 law came into. You think from a, pers- a lay perspective, that's going to stop it all. But it doesn't because all the law did was demand that it be truth in labeling. So if you included cocaine or heroin or morphine or alcohol into your medication, you had to list that on a label. If it wasn't listed, then you got in trouble. And what was Harvey Washington Wiley's big first case that he brought? It wasn't against Bayer and heroin or anybody else. It was against Coca-Cola. In Atlanta, brought it against Coca-Cola saying, by the way, you call yourself Coca-Cola, but you don't have anything from the coca plant in there. And you also have caffeine, which you don't list on the label. That became the government's big first case, and they didn't win it. So it wasn't a legendary way to start the law off. What actually put a dent into the American drug industry was that in 1914, the federal government passed the, the Harrison Act, which really banned the importation almost of all the narcotics that had been the mainstay of drugs beforehand of these so-called uh, you know, drugs that were wonder cures. And then we went into that great failed experiment in America on prohibition. So alcohol got banned and it could no longer be used as the base in most of the medications. And now the American drug industry by 1918, 1919 is really looking for some way to remake itself when uh, the first surveys are done on the size of American industries and they're put together to show you how how large they are. Um, The pharmaceutical industry in 1909 didn't even rate as a separate industry. It's not until the late 1920s that it's large enough to even rate as an industry because it didn't have any products. I mean, they discovered 
insulin in 1922, which is a wonder drug for diabetes, but that was done by a group of Canadian physicians and Eli Lilly immediately locked up the distribution rights they kept for years. And so it's not until the 19, late 1930s and early 1940s in World War II and the advent of penicillin that remakes the industry. And in your lead into you know, this morning, you said, is the last 70 or 80 years that's the real focus of this book. And that's because what we know as the modern uh, drug industry really starts from the era of penicillin and on, the era when the government says you've got to have a, 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 a prescription before you get a lot of these drugs. And then eventually by the 1960s decides that safety, believe it or not, and, and efficacy should be issues we look at as well. So penicillin was discovered in 1928 and really refined into the 1940s. How enthusiastic were these big pharmaceutical companies to add that to their arsenal, and what effect did they ultimately have? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because today we, we realize penicillin is one of the, the great all-time drug discoveries, one of the greatest human, human ever discoveries, because it saves not only what it was intended to in World War II from the federal government's perspective of lives on the battlefield, um, wounds, uh, people were wounded who in World War I would have died of those diseases didn't, but in addition saves hundreds of thousands of lives, millions around the world a year from people who would otherwise have died of simple infections and blood infections. So it truly is this wonder drug. And you imagine that when it starts to be picked up by an Oxford team of researchers in the late 1930s, you're right, it had been discovered by accident by this uh, Scottish pharmacologist uh, in 1928, but he didn't really know what to do with it and how to proceed. And so these Oxford researchers pick it up in the late 30s. They come over to America after the war has broken out in 1939 between the British and the Nazis. And they say, by the way, we have this, we have this possible antibiotic that we think could really be life changing. And the federal government says, okay, we will make it the second biggest secret project in America after the atomic bomb. So you had the Manhattan Project as the number one secret project. This becomes number two. And when the federal government and these Oxford researchers go out to talk to the big drug companies like Pfizer and Merck and others, they get a very lukewarm reception. They are told, well, we're not quite sure that really it's as big a drug as you think. We don't really want to change all our manufacturing facilities to put it out. We don't see where the money is in it. And they really are induced by the federal government to come in and do it. The federal government launches this program where it says, we will pay for all of the new plants. We'll build the fermentation facilities. We'll spend tens of million dollars on the production. And what you have to do, and this is interesting when we eventually get to COVID and the vaccines much later, the federal government said, you just have to share all the research. None of you are going to own the intellectual property rights. None of you are going to be able to patent the word penicillin and charge an extra amount of money for it. You're gonna share all your research, we're gonna put it out together, and we're gonna save lives. And those companies did it. Now, even if they were reluctant at first, it turned out it transformed the business because in the beginning of the war, there's almost no penicillin production. By the end of the war, it's the dominant drug. And in getting these new production facilities and plants, those 10 companies that got involved in penicillin production emerged unknowingly at the time after the war as the dominant firms. They were ready to go ahead and now patent and name and find competitive antibiotics that became the dominant drug in the 50s. They made a lot of money. And if you want a snapshot of how the drug business changed in a six-year period, in 1939 going into the war, German pharmaceutical companies, German pharmaceutical companies were always at the head of um, the research and development. 
they uh, they provided about one out of every two prescriptions around the world that was written came from a German company, Bayer, uh, and the rest of them. The after the war in 1945, the ten companies that had been involved, the American companies in the penicillin project, had 80 percent of the world's drug trade and almost 90% of the world's drug profits. Uh, German pharmaceutical companies had been bombed into oblivion during the bombing campaigns of Germany. The American drug industry moved to the forefront, and it's a position they stayed in ever since. That is an incredible statistic. I was going to bring that one up, but I'm glad you did so on your own. And not to neglect any of what you just talked about, because there are plenty other avenues that we could go into. But for the sake of uh, getting to what I think is the most important story in this book, I'm just going to encourage people to go out and buy pharma to learn much more about what penicillin and antibiotics did uh, in that moment and how it really affected the public's health over the next 20 years, really all the way to today as well. Of course, people are familiar with the Sackler family because of the evil that they have bestowed on society in the name of Oxycontin over the last 25 years or so. The Don Corleone of the Sackler family is Arthur Sackler. Who exactly was he just post-World War II, and how did he revolutionize how pharma marketed their drugs in the 1940s and 50s? Boy, you know, I, yeah, the Don Corleone analogy is absolutely perfect. He's just a diabolical genius when it comes to marketing. And, uh, you know, we think of the Sacklers, we've heard of the Sacklers, we know about them with Purdue and OxyContin. But until I did this book, I didn't realize how far back into the drug industry they played a role and what an impact they had. And it was really Arthur Sackler, the oldest of three brothers. These are first-generation Americans. Their, their parents had come from Eastern Europe. They had settled into Brooklyn and ran a small convenience shop. And these three brothers, with Arthur being the oldest and Mortimer and Raymond, his younger brothers, they went to medical school. Uh, they became psychiatrist doctors. And Arthur, instead of practicing, um, he decided that he would open up a small medical advertising firm. And, you know, today, people listen to this podcast may not think that sounds unusual. But in the 1950s, that was virtually unheard of because there was no medical advertising. Remember that pharmaceutical companies were selling to doctors. They weren't trying to convince the public to go after their, their uh, product because you needed a prescription to get it, same as you do now. But what they were doing then was they were trying to encourage doctors to write the prescriptions for what were a host of new types of antibiotics that they had branded under their own names. And what advertising meant to drug companies before Arthur Sackler came around was running essentially a copy of the drug panel insert, which is pretty boring. Your eyes glaze over in about two seconds um, in a reproduction of a quarter page or half page ad in the Journal of the American Medical Association or one of the more obscure scholarly uh, magazines that were publishing about drug studies. And Sackler came in with this small little uh, company that he had opened up on, on Madison Avenue, or what he and his colleagues and later partners called Medicine Avenue. And he said to a fellow Pfizer, who was a hard-charging CEO, I can take your antibiotic and make it the number one selling antibiotic in the country. And this CEO, Jack McKean, said, you know, how is that possible? Because he knew that the antibiotic that they had, uh, teramycin, was not very innovative. It was really only a molecule of difference from a competitor's. It showed no difference in lab tests in terms of its eff effectiveness, no difference in terms of the way it therapeutically was given, but it had enough of a molecular difference to qualify for a patent. So Pfizer had this antibiotic that had its own name. They could charge a price for it. Didn't really do anything different than what the competitors did. But what 
Sackler said to them is, let me show you what marketing can do. And this is the man tray that came up in the production for that launch with a $10 million launch at that time was unheard of. Nobody spent that much money inside the drug industry for a launch. He developed the idea of what were later detailed teams, but at the time were detailed men. They were all men at the time. They were salesmen who went out and, and saw the doctors and tried to pitch them individually on, on ordering that drug and ordering more of them, and then later concentrated and focused on the high prescribing doctors to make it even work better. He's the one who came up with the idea for four-page color ads, not just inside the medical journals to stand out, but to have special conventions to have what were the equivalent of speakers bureaus, where a doctor who was prescribing your antibiotic and was based in New York City might want to go to the Caribbean in the middle of the winter, and you could have a conference down there where a whole bunch of other doctors could be flown in, and he could be paid $5,000 for talking about the drug he's prescribing, and it's a way of inducing more prescriptions all the way along the line. All of that hard sell Madison Avenue sell, which had not been part of the drug industry before, worked because not only did Sackler make that particular drug for Pfizer, the number one selling antibiotic in the country, but then other drug companies who noticed how good his handiwork with, mm -hmm. they said, let's hire him for our product. And no better example of that than Hoffman LaRoche, the Swiss-based company who brought him in for Librium, which is in 1960 was released and was the first of a new class of drugs, benzodiazepines. He made that the number one drug in America, but it's replaced in 1963 because, of course, Librium is this mild sedative anti, you know, tranquilizer that's supposed to be safer than anything else before it. But in 1963 comes out from the same company from Hoffman LaRoche, the same lab team, Valium. And when Arthur Sackler finally gets that to be the number one drug in America with the most advanced and most expensive cell campaign ever, Valium stays the number one drug in the world for an unprecedented 15 years before everybody starts to realize how addictive it can be and how debilitating it can be. So Sackler was the magician, really the magician in many ways, who turned the drug industry onto the hard cell. And as you know, Trey, in the 50s when he first did this, there were some purists still in the business, uh, CEOs of companies, uh, none more so than Merck, the great grandson of the founder of the company, who thought that a pharmaceutical company was a quasi-public trust. They owed an obligation to make profits for the shareholders, but at the same time owed, first of all, a, a duty to the patients to develop cures at, at reasonable prices. They thought the Arthur Sacklers of the world were terrible, that if the industry went down that route, it was, it was bad news for them. But no company, including even Merck, could eventually hold out. When they saw the sales numbers that came from the hard sell, they all ended up adopting either Sackler's company or competitors of his, and I put competitors in quotes, who ended up um, having backdoor deals often with him and sharing the profits in today what would be a tremendous conflict of interest. You mentioned that Roche ends up at really at Sackler's behest coming up with these two different uh, new class of drug, benzodiazepines, with Librium and then Valium shortly after that. But they were actually finishing up the development of Valium as they were getting Librium approved. Why were they creating two drugs at, at a similar time that would essentially compete against one another on the market? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's so interesting because they actually, uh, the, the team, that the research team that came up with that came up with a class of benzodiazepines, different uh, versions of drugs, and some of them were not released until uh, Valium got in trouble in the mid-1970s as, re as replacements. They were looking always for what they called a better, better version of their existing drug. Better meant 
lower side effect profile, possibly, or easier to dispense. So there are two things that drive drug companies to get new patents. One of them is if you can take the same drug you have now, let's say you have a drug, there's a current example, for instance, Gilead, a high-tech company out of California, is marketing a drug uh, for prophylactic treatment, actually, for uh, COVID uh, called remdesivir. It gets you out of the hospital five days early, according to, to Gilead. It's an IV drug, so you have to give it IV. That means it has to be done in the hospital. What's the holy grail inside Gilead right now? They're looking for a way that it can be dispensed by pills. If they do, that is the same drug, same effect. Maybe you still say five days, but pills means you can take it outside of having to go into a clinic or see a doctor. So with with Valium, they're looking for a drug that may be taken less often than would be taken if it was given with Librium. That certainly happened later when we get to OxyContin and the introduction of all of the, the morphines that were used for end of life. They were looking for pills that could be dis to given at a longer, you know, eight hours as opposed to every four hours. So sometimes something is simple as easier to dispense will qualify for a new patent. And it's not surprising to me that they were looking for those inside the company, but there was a debate inside Hoffman LaRoche at the time about whether they should release Valium, would it cut into Librium sales? And what Arthur Sackler showed, which was part to his credit and to unfortunately not the benefit of, uh, of most Americans, especially American women, and then later international women, was he had a different idea for marketing Valium. He, he marketed Librium as a general aid to men and women in terms of being a very mild tranquilizer would help you better. But when he put out Valium, he started to differentiate the difference between men and women using these army experiments that were called the executive monkey. And, and the, the long and short of it is that Sackler decides to market Valium to men by saying, you know what, you're the breadwinners. You're the ones that have to go out and earn the money for the family. You have to at the same time show that you're tough and never show any weakness. And so what you're likely to get is an ulcer. You use Valium, you'll be better at work. You'll be a higher performer. You won't get an ulcer. You'll be able to do all the work you need to. You carry on, you go home, and you'll be able to take care of your family as well. To women, he said, you know, you're essentially, you need Valium for a different reason. You're neurotic, neurotic, and hysterical. Now, of course, it's so sexist. We laugh almost at that to think, how was that ever possible? You could say it. But when you look at Arthur Sackler's most successful ads that he ran, uh, there are things, for instance, about a fictional 35-year-old single uh, woman who's uh, had this could never really come out of the shadow of her father and then later dated a series of men in these pictures. It's a little sort of story told about her. And then later she can't get married. And as a spinster, as he describes her, she's absolutely neurotic. And what saves her life? Valium. Um, he runs ads later. He helps them do it for people, things like Adderall and stimulants that actually show women vacuuming faster, as hard as that is to imagine, not having the baby blues. And, and that type of marketing uh, to women worked because in the end, doctors who were 95% male, by the way, in the early 1960s, not surprising, um, 66 to 70% overall of the prescriptions written for Valium uh, when it was the number one drug were written for women. And uh, the Sackler's way of you know differentiating the two and, and figuring out a way not to cannibalize all of Librium's drug sales worked because Librium stayed in the top five for a long time. Well, sadly, this isn't the only example of gender being exploited for the sake of profit within the pharmaceutical industry. You cite a watershed moment for pharma in 1960 when the FDA approves an oral contraceptive called Innovid, a.k.a. the pill. What was its significance in this moment and just how well researched was it before approval? 
Yeah, you know, Innovit had been around, it was uh, approved before. It had been out by Cyril uh, and used as this uh, general aid on a mood and what they thought might be helpful, but they realized that it had this uh, other effect, which was, in fact, it stopped the, the menstrual cycle and would and prevent pregnancy. And when it came up for approval, the FDA was split on it because it was the first time ever that a drug was approved not to treat a condition, an illness or sickness or end-of-life condition, but for a lifestyle choice that you might not want to have children, so a reproductive choice, and and it would give women the power to do that. At the same time, they were making that choice. Not only was there conservative opposition and religious opposition, but they had to get over that hurdle of deciding that they were going to approve a drug for that. Now, people like Arthur Sackler, by the way, is a sidelight had from the late 1950s been looking for the holy grail of what they considered prescription drugs, which was a lifestyle drug. He wanted something, and Valium came close to that, but not quite. But what he was looking for was a drug that you could prescribe every day, like a be happy pill, hmm. where essentially you weren't sick at all. You didn't have high cholesterol. You didn't have uh, cardiovascular disease. You weren't worried about diabetes, but you still popped the be happy pill from Pfizer that Sackler was promoting because that be happy pill just made you feel a little bit better. Sort of what SSRIs were marketed for almost, you know, years later when they came out as antidepressants uh, by the late 1980s. But that's what they had been looking for. And so when the pill comes up, People like Sackler and many in the drug industry thinks that it's it's a great approval separate from the idea of what the pill is for because it opens the door possibly to medications that don't need to respond to an illness or a sickness. Now, what happens with the pill is that a lot of social warriors and, and, and feminists at the time, and rightfully so, said this is an earth-changing medication because it allows women to make a choice over their own reproductive rights that never existed before. True, but as a result, what happened is as reports started to come into Cyril of an increasing number of blood clots and some of them being fatal and then of an increasing also endometrial cases of cancer, instead of reporting those to the FDA, and there was no requirement that they had to do so at the time, they buried them in the back halls of the, of the drug company. And, the, and very little criticism came out about the pill in the mid to late 60s from people that might otherwise have done investigations on it because they didn't want to upend what they thought was a very, very helpful tool that had empowered women. And so as a result, the pill got what I call a free ride, longer than it should have, with Cyril really being the one responsible. It's not until the mid-1970s in congressional hearings that are started where we learn how terrible it is that the pill has caused this legacy of, of women who have died, had cancers, had all types of blood clot issues. And at that point, the pill is reformulated into a much lower dose hormone version, much safer, but still with some risk and now comes with warnings. But in the beginning, it had this long extended period where not only did it do damage at the same time that it had a good effect, but the drug company responsible hid the facts. And as you know, if you want to talk about it, the same thing happened with hormone replacement therapy, a little bit different, which was for women in menopause, just about the same time in terms of marketing from drug companies. Yeah. What did horse urine have to do with pharma's treatment of menopause in the mid-1960s? Yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine. So a drug comes from uh, from a horse urine and is Prempro and is pregnant mare's urine. And it is, in fact, a, a hormone for a replacement that uh, 
could offset the loss of estrogen that women have at menopause. Okay, now there's a legitimate medical debate that you can have about whether you lose a, a compound that you have in your body when you're younger, should you always replace it? Men think they should replace testosterone when they get into their 50s and 60s, but there's pretty good evidence that if you do that, you may spark prostate cancer to grow a little bit earlier and a little bit faster than before. There's always a downside to just thinking that mother nature is wrong by depleting a chemical that's otherwise there. And all women have one thing in common, whether they have children or not, if they live long enough, they go through menopause, this natural change in life in which they slowly lose the amount of estrogen they have and they stop menstruating. And so that was just part of it. So how did, how did a drug company, in this case, it, it turned out to be Wyeth, decide to medicalize menopause because there was a big uh, business in it. They got a doctor, and we only find this out later. They subsidize him. He's a leading Manhattan gynecologist, and and the they decide that if they subsidize his office and pay for his bills, that Robert Wilson, who was his name, could write a book called Forever Young. And in Forever Young, uh, he, he writes the story about how menopause is a debilitating illness, how he watched his own mother become what he called a castrate, that she lost all her sexuality, and he really pitched is the book to say, if you as a woman want to keep your sense of youth, your vibrance, your sexuality, your thick hair, your great eyelashes, your good skin, and your sense that you're a real person, you'll replace your, the lost hormones that nature takes away with you with this product, Prempro. And what happens? They, Wyeth, pick up evidence, just like Cyril did on the pill, that there are women who are having endometrial cancers and blood clots as well. They later find out when this becomes public in the 1970s that the levels of HRT that were then being prescribed were off the charts. So they lowered the levels way down and then adjusted it. But why do we as consumers have a lack of faith that the people inside the laboratories, you know, here's the problem, Trey. The, the researchers in the labs are often looking for real cures. They're often looking for something better than what their competitor has. They're looking for something that might treat a cancer. They're coming up with penicillin. They're coming up with the polio vaccine. They're doing good things. Then that work gets patented and transferred over to the marketing people, the, the heirs to Arthur Sackler, who are often inside the pharmaceutical companies and they use outside companies as well. And then they have to decide how to sell it. And once they decide to sell it and they are making billions of dollars in a revenue stream from it and some bad news trickles in about what might be happening, bad news mean adverse effects to the patients taking it in increasing numbers that may indicate the drug has a dangerous profile. Instead of immediately going to the FDA and doing more testing, there's this reflexive reaction that you see in things like on hormones and on the birth control pill and in other areas as well to hide it. They think by, if we don't say anything, maybe it's really not related to the drug. Maybe let's not test it anymore. And if we don't look at it, it'll go away and it never goes away. And when it becomes public, the public loses faith in drug companies across the board. And that's part of the history of the American pharmaceutical company and one of the most disturbing parts. Well, and that speaks to the sadly ironic final chapter of Robert Wilson, too, correct? Yes. It's hard to imagine that his son, who interviewed with my wife, who's also an author, my, my wife's first book in 2000, which called This Is Not Your Mother's Menopause, about her own passage through menopause without using HRT because her family had a history of breast cancer. So she just sort of came up with a natural regimen that worked for herself. She had discovered that um, the son later learned from his... Uh, a mother, she sat him down and she had been part of the, the book, the process. She had been his assistant to her, uh, to his father uh, when he was in his practice. 
and she disclosed to him that she had had uh, breast cancer and she had had breast cancer twice as a matter of fact it was never disclosed to him the son because it was kept a secret he the father had decided together with the people from Wyeth that they could not disclose the fact that she had an estrogen based breast cancer because that was bad for business how could he be the one shilling in one of the most popular bestsellers of the 1960s the idea that hormone replacement was a panacea for women if his own wife developed cancer that was very likely as a result of taking estrogens for that length of time and so that did stay secret even to the family. And uh, it's remarkable to me when you think about the personal toll of this, it would be the equivalent if, if you had written a popular book as a physician about the need to take Oxycontin or opioids for everything from mild back spasms to, you know, if you were a little stiff and standing up, a great over dispensing of Oxycontin and you hid the fact that your own spouse or your own child got addicted to Oxycontin and later died of an overdose because you thought that was bad for your book sales, it would be just as horrific. And in this case with Robert Wilson, it's one of those dark moments where you just read it and it makes your blood boil, but you also think to yourself, you know, this is, I, I, I say often, you know, I try to present a history here of the drug industry that's fair and balanced, which means that the, the, it tries to weigh the good things that have been done against the things that go against the grain. And But we remember sort of the bad ones often, remember the bad players. And that's because they aren't just selling, you know, widget stores. They aren't selling chairs or a desk or, you know, a, a, a new stove. They're selling products that deal with our health. And we rely on them. Um, we get prescriptions for them. People go to doctors. They go to pharmacies. And we want to get those and find out that at least they're as safe as we think they can be. And if they aren't, they're going to tell us about that. And and if they and if they do tell us about that, we can make an informed decision and not be price gouged. And it's the bad episodes that we end up remembering, unfortunately, I think, more often than the good ones. You're right about that. And that is a sad example of an individual selling his soul to continue peddling a flawed idea or product. Now, that's the bad, unfortunately. One of the more positive characters that I encountered in your book is a guy named James Goddard. He ends up taking over the FDA in 1965, and he's a guy that I have a ton of respect for because he really walked the talk on holding pharma more accountable while also expressing a very level-headed opinion on criminalizing addiction, especially considering the time. For instance, during 1968 House testimony on whether to make LSD illegal, he was one of the few government officials to actually push for spending money on public education on the dangers of drugs and also treatment for addicts instead of this criminalization. Unfortunately, though, uh, as you're well aware, this created some enemies within the federal government to go along with those from Big Pharma who already hated him, forcing him to resign in May of 1968, just three years after taking that job. Prior to that, though, Gerald, what were some of the ways that he made things really uncomfortable for the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, you know, I, I think that Goddard is one of those great examples. You're absolutely right. The thing that worked against him is exactly what you and I like so much, and that is his direct forthright approach. He came in and he wasn't beholden to the drug industry, nor was he just a crusader who said, by the way, I'm going to set it all on fire because I don't happen to like you. Um, he really was looking at taking the helm of the FDA as what I sort of describe as a more robust guardian of public health. That's unusual, right? Oh, my God, we think FDA, Food and Drug Administration, that's what they should be doing. That's not always what they end up doing. And even in the very first weeks, he focused on, and think of this, he's coming in in the mid-60s. In 66, Robert Wilson writes his book. Uh, Arthur Sackler is promoting Librium from 60 on, and from 60 
66 and on. He's promoting in big ways volume. These multi-million dollar campaigns actually start before that. This is when Goddard's in power. And what does he focus on almost off the bat? The industry's runaway drug promotion. He was so concerned that drug companies were trumpeting just their favorable research, puffing up what was insignificant and not giving out the real information about what the potential danger was, that he was seeking ways that the FDA and others like the FTC may be able to rein in some of that pr promotion. And that, of course, um, immediately set the pharmaceutical companies as his implacable foes. And he talks to them in a series of conferences. He gives these priorities in these, in his, these addresses he talks to them. And he, he quotes about the, the notion that really what we need to do is change this grim medical history. We need to change the way that pharma targets and typecast, not just women at the time that he was talking about, but how doctors have to prescribe them differently to, to patients in general and have to be more forthright in disclosing information. Transparency, a word often overused, trade nowadays, but was something that was big for Goddard. And, and when the drug companies pushed back and wanted him to lay off, he didn't do that. And you're right. He finally, when he lost the support inside of government because he was talking about the possibilities of decriminalization and not making everybody who was using a drug, um, you know, that was not at the time legal into a, a criminal, and especially as the Nixon administration was about to, to come into office and uh, and be on a law and order routine and launched the war on drugs, he was out of favor clearly with even other government officials. And pharma breathed a big sigh of relief that he had in fact stumbled on that area and was taken out of office because he was potentially a real thorn in their side. And you see some in later years, like, like, uh, you know, Dr. Kessler, I talk about him later on. And I think that you'll see others that the pharma industry don't like. Those are the ones at the FDA that for a while look like they might be able to turn things around. The difficulty always is that as we've gone on in years from the 1960s, when Goddard was first there, the number of drug companies have grown. The size of those companies have grown, and so has the FDA. And the FDA always seems undermatched. It doesn't have the the ability to keep on top of everything it's supposed to do. So even what Goddard had been proposing in the 60s was a tough haul. Today, it's even harder for somebody at the FDA because it seems as though it's only half the size it needs to be, even if it had the most serious intent. Half the size, and the pharmaceutical industry has also been lobbying the government at various levels for a long time now, and the amount that they're pumping into the government to get legislation passed that benefits them, it's bipartisan. I mean, they're not afraid to pay off both sides of the aisle if it means helping them achieve that greater good. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I mean, two things, I'll, I'll work backwards for a second on that and back to the FDA, but, you know, people say to me sometimes, okay, who's to blame here, Democrats or Republicans? And I say, well, give me the year, give me the decade. <laughs> there are some decades when I'm mad at the Democrats and some decades I'm mad at the Republicans. Um, and you want a recent example of bipartisan anger? Uh, in, the, in March of 2020, when COVID was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, the first bill that went through Congress before stimulus or anything else was a very quick bill in a couple of weeks for $8 billion. And that included $3 billion flooding into the drug companies to look for vaccines. Now, in the very first draft of that bill, there were two clauses in it. One gave the federal government real power to come in if the vaccine prices were too high and hammer them lower. And, and the second said that all the research from this $3 billion that you do at federal taxpayer money will be public. You'll share the information like the penicillin program. No one's going to own the IP rights. By the time that was passed two weeks later, those two provisions were stripped out. The three billion dollars went to them without any, any, uh, you know, uh, uh, there were no strings attached. Remember, 
Republican president and Democratic Congress. We had, the House was controlled by the Democrats. Both sides had to agree on, on taking those provisions out. So as you say, pharma is very good about making sure that it has friends on both sides of the aisle. And the other thing is back to the FDA. The FDA started a thing um, a couple of decades ago where you as a drug company were able to pay an expedited fee. So you have a drug that you want to approve right away and you think is very important to get through. And instead of waiting the three years and five years that it takes to go through the bureaucratic molasses of a system at the FDA, you can pay some real money, get an expedited process and get the drug through much faster. Well, guess what? For drug companies, that's the price of doing business. And they and most of them pay for that. As a result, depends on which study you look at, but more than half and sometimes up to 60% of the FDA's current budget comes from those expedited fees. So now you've created a situation in which the FDA, much of the money that actually gets to run itself, instead of coming just from federal funding, comes from these expedited fees from the very companies that they're supposed to be keeping a, a good eye on. And, uh, and, and that has created a, an internal conflict of interest that I think is just fraught with problems for the future. One such bit of legislation that was supposed to help and ended up benefiting uh, the pharmaceutical industry in certain ways was the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. The initial draft created four schedules of drugs based on medical use and potential for abuse. But why did the final version, signed October 27, 1970, end up having five schedules? Yeah, you know, it's so fabulous. Well, there are two things. First of all, the, the, the fifth schedule was um, a little handiwork of Arthur Sackler and the Roche people. They said, oh, my goodness, we don't want benzodiazepines. We don't want Valium listed as a controlled substance. What are we going to do if this drug that we've told everybody in the 1960s is just like popping an emotional aspirin? <laughs> suddenly it's on a controlled substance list. OK, what do we do? We don't want it there with uh, any of these other drugs, uh, opioids, or we don't certainly want it with tranquilizers and serious tranquilizers. And uh, OK, we'll develop a special, almost a Roche Valium fifth um, area is controlled, but it's only controlled because it happens to have some chemical relation to what otherwise might be controlled substances in, in bigger types of tranquilizers. And it really is very, very mild. So that, that fifth that fifth one was really done at the behest, the lobbying, the behind-the-scenes pressure, and the politicking of uh, Hoffman, LaRoche, and work. And then, of course, there's that little wrinkle to the—I uh, I talked to the lawyer, who later becomes a lawyer for the Sackler family, but at that time, he's inside the federal government and the Department of Justice, Michael Sonnenreich, who drafted um, the outline of the Controlled Substance Act, and you ask him— as a researcher and reporter, as I did, how did marijuana end up on, you know, schedule one with heroin as one of the most dangerous possible drugs, which later has led to this effort to say, well, it's way overclassified. You know, we should just go the opposite way and, and not only have medicinal marijuana, but some states now have recreational uh, marijuana. And, and you find out that that's really because at the time um, he and a group had been together, the Schaefer Commission had been appointed by Nixon to look into marijuana on its own. And they came to the conclusion that they thought marijuana was, although it had some downsides and side effects as any as anything will, whether it's alcohol or whatever else, did should not be criminalized and probably a decriminalization process would be worthwhile. The Nixon administration on its law and order bent hated that. They they never pushed the uh, the findings of the Schaefer Commission. Sonnenreich was on the outs. And what they did is the Nixon administration put marijuana on, on Schedule 1, not for it to stay there forever, but thinking if we put it on Schedule 1, 
that's going to force a compromise. What always happens in Congress, you compromise. So now the people who are for decriminalization are going to come back and say, okay, we don't think it should be on schedule one. It should instead be on schedule four, but it should have some restrictions on it or things like this. Nobody ever did that. It stayed on schedule one. The war on drugs kept going ahead. Nixon got out of office after having to resign because of Watergate and nobody ever corrected it afterwards, much to my shock. And so as a result, you end up with this strange anomaly where for political posturing and, and politicking, marijuana is put on schedule one, the most dangerous of drugs. And later, decades later, comes to haunt the entire discussion of the drug when it becomes part of the milieu and nobody understands the history of why it's there. That's just so infuriating that benzos are given such a pass and how the potential danger that they have, especially when mixed with things like alcohol, whereas marijuana, which has ruined so many people's lives in terms of some of the punishments that they've had to face as a result, was uh, essentially a matter of negligence and Nixon and his administration just being totally aloof on things. Yeah. And, you know, it's very interesting when you say that, you know, a moment ago, you, you said something very interesting. You say benzos, especially mixed with alcohol and that. And one of the things that drug companies did very, very well, and they did this also with Oxycontin uh, later, but benzo sort of laid what I call the template for how you defend this. When the charges started to come up and there were some people, um, there was a, a, a cover story in the New York Times magazine uh, in like 75 called Value Mania. There was a doctor inside of New York who was speaking out against benzo saying that she found it among her patients who were coming to the clinic as addictive as heroin and just as dangerous. And there were overdoses from it. And so how did Roche fight back against that? They would actually take the the deaths of people who were reported in New York City and other cities where there was benzos in the blood supply and toxicology report, and then they would show that there were a whole bunch of other drugs or alcohol mixed in. Now, that never led the FDA to say, by the way, don't use benzos if you're also using alcohol or another drug, because all these drug companies do the same thing. They take their product, they test it in these clinical trials, and they test it in a pure environment. The test subjects are taking that drug, and they aren't going out and going to a party and having a fifth of uh, vodka or going ahead and mixing it with stimulants and whatever else. And so you, you get in a clinical trial the drug on its own with its side effects. Now you start to mix it with a whole bunch of other things, and it can, in fact, be lethal. But Roche would say, oh, it's not lethal on its own. It's mixed with all these other drugs. We don't know what role it played. We don't know the exact amount in the body. And so you're blaming benzos because that happened to be in the body um, and, and it can't be blamed for the death. And years later, when um, the Drug Administration, and I write about this, came up and they looked at the autopsy reports in, in these dozens of states and they thought Oxy in an early time in 2000, 2001 was leading to overdose deaths, Purdue met with them and said, look at the, all of these toxicology reports. None of them are just OxyContin alone. They all have different things inside of them. And the mixture is what causes the death. So you can't blame OxyContin. It's that same deferral process, which they know in their heart isn't true. They, they're dealing with an addictive process in both benzos and in oxy that in high enough dosages can suppress the respiratory system and lead to failure. But so can the other things mixed in like alcohol um, or il- other illegal drugs can also suppress the respiratory system. So there's a cumulative effect. Well, that transitions perfectly into what needs to be an extended conversation on the evolution of opioids. Pharma was really starting to work on developing new opioids for pain treatment in the 1960s without really understanding how they actually worked to relieve pain. Ultimately, they did learn that mechanism around 1973. How do opioids work and why do they become problematic similar to things like nicotine, alcohol, and cocaine? 
they're effectively blocking you know the signal inside the brain that allows you to feel the pain um, and in doing that it it builds up a at first what is a psychological dependence on the drug because you like to be pain free or get some distance from the pain it also has a tendency to develop you develop as a, as a patient on a tolerance so that the 20 milligrams of an opioid that might have been very very uh, helpful initially in alleviating chronic pain doesn't help as much and so the dosage is often increased and when you increase the dosage you start to get into the area then of not just psychological dependence but physical dependence and then there's the crossover for some people and not all develop it for, for those who do the physical dependence can become an actual addiction and it's and that's not just a matter of saying oh, that's tougher to get off of, or you have more side effects if you try to go cold turkey. I mean, doctors have spent years in trying to, you know, dice the difference between this physical dependence and the physical addiction, and it's hard to do. But, you know, what you said, though, Trey, in the beginning is in terms of the relief of pain, I think a lot of people, and I wasn't aware of it until I was doing this book, that the origins of OxyContin and opioids really is from uh, the effort of a British nurse turned uh, doctor, uh, a physician, uh, you know, Cicely Saunders in Britain, who developed the modern hospice movement. She opens up the first hospice, St. Christopher's in London in 1966, and she had been treating end of life terminal cancer patients and they were not able to leave the hospital because they needed pain relief every four hours or thereabouts. And pain relief, the equivalent of, of legal heroin at the time, had to be administered through IV. So her holy grail was she knew that hospice, the ability to go home, to die in the peace and sanctity and sort of the uh, integrity of your own home surrounded by friends and loved ones as opposed to being in the sterile atmosphere of a hospital with visiting hours and everything else would be the ability to dispense pain medication that was easier to dispense so her holy grail was to find a long acting form of a morphine or an opium that would allow them to go home and the company that came up with that in the late 60s, early 70s was lo and behold, a company called Knapp Pharmaceuticals owned by the Sackler family of all people hmm. in Britain. They come up with a long acting morphine product called MS Contin. And that drug was, and it was approved here in the United States, was MS Continuous there, MS Contin when it was approved in the US, was a supposedly up to 12 hours of relief morphine for end of life terminal cancer patients. When they Purdue eventually market OxyContin in 1996. They decide morphine has too much of a stigma to a name, so they're going to make it instead with oxycodone as the underlying, very chemically similar to, to heroin. And it's also 12, it's approved for 12-hour dosing. They no longer just limit the marketing to end-of-life cancer pain. They've expanded the marketing with the FDA's approval in many cases to a much wider group of chronic pain. And, and there starts the beginning of what becomes the modern-day opioid crisis. Liberalized prescribing, um, you know, we could talk about this in a whole bunch of different ways, but there are plenty of guilty parties, as I always say, when it comes to the most lethal drug epidemic in American history. It's not just the manufacturers, Purdue, and the other big companies like Johnson & Johnson, um, who's Janssen Pharmaceutical Company has an opioid product, and, and Teva and others. It is also the doctors who overprescribe. There were overprescribers. There are some who were running illegal pill mills, which are essentially just uh, drug uh, illegal drug clinics where you happen to have a doctor and a, and a pad writing prescriptions. There are the distributors, the multi-billion dollar distributors um, from Amerisource, Bergen, uh, to Cardinal and others who know where every 
every pill is being sourced and sold and they know exactly when a little pharmacy in West Virginia is getting more pills than the population of the entire county and they're not saying a word to the FDA. There's the FDA who is lax and at times whose officials who approve OxyContin go over to the company and later go to work for Purdue, that revolving door, and and don't come in and crack down enough. So there's there's plenty of guilt to go around, but when, you know, and we... We have the benefit. I have the benefit as a journalist. You have the benefit as somebody looking at it of being here on almost Monday morning. It's still going on, but we're in the final stages of it in some ways in terms of OxyContin. But now it's easy to look back and see where the mistakes were made and systemic failure across the board. Uh, You can't just do it on your own. You can't just be a greedy drug company and decide, oh, by the way, I'm going to take a controlled substance. I'm going to sell it for things for which it's not approved and, and make all this money. You have to have accomplices along the way. And uh, and they certainly had them. So many despicable examples of the accomplices. We'll get into some of those starting in 1980. So as you've talked about throughout this conversation, pharma has always been searching for that non-addictive painkiller. And situations like this, this search for a holy grail, often lead to circling back around to reconsider something that didn't work the first time around. And this happened with opioids in 1980 when a doctor and his grad student stated that an examination of 40,000 hospital records actually showed that what was thought of as a pretty highly addictive product with opioids was really overstated. And they really made their case in a pretty brief letter to the editor published in the New England Journal of Medicine. How legit was the research and what impact did this end up having on the pain management business? Yeah, you know, I I think it's really amazing that uh, how sometimes just uh, a few dozen words can change the uh, the course of uh, what happens with the drug. And that certainly happened here. The Journal of the American Medical Association is one of the most respected medical journals in part because they do peer reviews of articles that are published. So a group of independent physicians, doctors, specialists in that field are going to look at anything before it's published. They're going to put it through the ringer. They're going to fact check it. They're going to challenge the writers. And we, we expect that by the time it gets in a jam, it's supposed to have gone through that rigorous process. They don't. It turns out, here's the little caveat or footnote, as I call it. They don't uh, uh, go ahead and peer review letters to the editor. So, and it would make sense. I guess that's a bit too far afield for them. But in this case, the letter to the editor said about OxyContin, by the way, we've had all of these tens of thousands of uh, instances of case studies with it, and only literally a few instances, a couple in which we've had uh, what is real addiction. Now that changes that statistic less than 1%, less than one-tenth of 1% becomes the statistic that's important. It turns out that was a study of hospital admissions in which people were on painkillers for anywhere from three to seven days while in the hospital, and one, in some cases up to 10 days while they were in the hospital. They were not followed afterwards in any continuing study to find out if they continued to take those drugs at any time. So we don't know if, in fact, they developed an addiction for it. What they were saying by that short report when you went back to them years later and asked in detail about it was, We were just saying that at the time, nobody seemed to show the signs of addiction from their short treatment in the hospital. A completely different environment, a controlled environment in which the dispensing of the medication can be given when it's supposed to be given, not given earlier, not given at a higher dose, not given from an extra pill that you get from a friend or from a doctor who prescribes too many, all the things that happen in real life. So it's a useless study in many ways, but it's not even a study. It's a, it's a comment about one particular observation at the hospital. And what happens with that tray, as you know, is it's remarkable that over time, 
Even the mainstream press from Time and others when doing stories about pain relief and medications cited as a study, an important study, a JAMA study. It becomes part of the lexicon and Purdue as the maker of OxyContin years later when they put it out, they jump on that. They cite that all the time to doctors. And the one thing I've learned about doctors is even the well-intentioned ones, even the specialist, they have their own practices. Okay, some work for the VA, some work for the government, some work for a hospital. They're on a salary. Um, many of them are running their own practices together with a group of other doctors. They're, they're doing insurance. They're worried about rent payments. They've got issues to, with employment. And they do not, they cannot find all the time to stay up with all the literature on all the drugs that they are prescribing. It just doesn't happen. So what do they rely on? They rely on the salespeople that come in from the pharmaceutical companies and tell them, what the story is often and that is the danger and that's exactly what happens here when they are told about this JAMA study not really a letter to the editor that says such a low percentage of um, people could ever be addicted to the drug and I will say that that letter led into coincidentally and I don't see this as a grand conspiracy a re-evaluation movement that was taking place in the mid 80s by a group of pain doctors uh, you know, we didn't even have the field of pain management at the time. It was just developing. Of uh, Pain doctors at that time at Sloan Kettering, the largest cancer institute, uh, one of the most prestigious in New York, who said, you know, we think that opioids in general have been tar and feathered for too long as too addictive. And they cited that uh, that letter and some of their own observational anecdotes from, from Sloan Kettering. And we also think that pain is undertreated. So that if you go to a doctor in the mid-80s and you say, by the way, I have pain, the doctor would almost inevitably look for the underlying condition. What was causing your pain? Did you have arthritis? Had you hurt yourself? Had you fallen? Was there a tumor in your back? Something like that. Instead, these doctors said, guess what? You don't have to always look for the underlying condition if you find it fine. But if you can't find it, you should treat pain as its own diagnosis. And that means with painkillers. So they pushed for the idea of a fifth vital sign. You went to doctors and you were given blood pressure and they took your temperature and they found out you know, uh, the, uh, you know, your height and your weight. Now they wanted you to ask, what's your level of pain today on a one to 10 scale? You're asked that often. If people go to doctors, they'll realize that. And that became part of what was being sought. And so if they had pain that was high, you didn't have any reason to find it then dip down into the prescription pad and write a pain reliever. And that reevaluation movement leads perfectly into Purdue Pharma's approval of OxyContin in 96 because they just happened to catch the perfect storm. The 1980s really were this era of subjective diagnoses with uh, whatever illness you felt like you were dealing with or whatever illness the doctor was trying to snuff out to then prescribe something for you, whether it's an opioid or anti-anxiety medication. Obviously, antidepressants start to come up at this time as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Very. It is very interesting. And I think that, they, uh, you know, I re read some of the books written by the doctors at that time who were these advocates for what I call this reevaluation movement. And, and they go into this great detail of making their case. They're academic and medical books. And so they never had a wide audience. But one of the things that they make the case for is what they said, patients' rights. OK, the ability to ask 
not only for your medical record, but to be listened to about what your condition was. There's a book called Pain Management Theory and Practice by Russell Portnoy, who became one of the great advocates for for the uh, liberalization of opioids and today is blamed by many for having led that front um, and, uh, you know, to great harm to others. But his argument was, if you go in and say you have pain um, and it's keeping you up at night or whatever else, and the doctor does all the tests for nerve tests and whatever else, can find any biological reason for that pain, they'll often not treat it beforehand. And you leave the office feeling like you're a hypochondriac. You're somebody who is complaining about something for which there's no reason, and and that's your problem. And if you leave the office as a woman who goes in and says, you know, I'm a little depressed after having a birth, or I'm having a difficult time on menstruation or that, and you're not given anything except for um, an SSRI as an antidepressant, you also feel that there's something wrong. And so what Portnoy and others played off of is this was a time for physicians to listen to patients, and if they described a condition that they said they had, then you should try to treat it. Well, of course, you know, the th- that is that's music to pharma's ears because what treatment means, if you're a physician, you have a patient complaining about feeling, you know, out of sorts or, or blase or not having much motivation in life, or you have a patient complaining about pain and you can't find the reasons for either of those in an organic sense for a physician, what do you do? You go to the pharma playbook and pharma says, we have a fix for that. Prescribe opioids for the person in pain and prescribe antidepressants or, or uh, benzodiazepines for the person who feels flat and without motivation. And and we are a society, Trey, that likes a simple fix. You know, people think that's fantastic. I'll walk out of here with a pill. That'll make me better. And it's not always the case because it's a devil's bargain. There's always, uh, you know, a, a, a Faustian bargain with this. It doesn't work out for your long-term benefit. Did the publishing of the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in 1980 add further kindling to this raging fire? Yeah, absolutely. The DSM uh, is sort of the Bible for psychiatrists and for doctors to be able to to make uh, prescriptions. And one of the things that DSM has done over the years, and this would be to Arthur Sackler's absolute, uh, you know, uh, eternal delight because he was a psychiatrist, is he knew that you needed to have things listed in the DSM for doctors who were not specialists in in psychological uh, disturbances and all types of mental issues uh, to say, okay, I feel comfortable enough to prescribe that because it's in the DSM as a real syndrome. And whether that becomes anxiety, anxiety uh, laden disorder, uh, PTSD, uh, yes, truly disorder, but becomes medicalized as the insurance company grows. And as uh, what I call, you know, the uh, medical management of practices is taken over increasingly by universal insurance uh, with a handful of insurance companies starting in the 1980s. If it wasn't medicalized in the DSM or another syndrome in, in a medical journal, insurance companies wouldn't cover it. So the minute the DSM would medicalize a condition and put it in, then it became something that could be paid for by insurance and doctors would start to prescribe in ever larger numbers. So it becomes, you know, which is first, the cart or the horse? Uh, is the DSM medicalizing a condition as, let's say, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, perfect example, GAD. Uh, beforehand, if a doctor prescribed a benzodiazepine for general anxiety disorder, your insurance company might or might not cover it. But if he were diagnosed as now having general anxiety disorder as defined by the DSM and prescribed a new and, and greatest sort of medication for it that was much more expensive than everything else, it would likely be covered. So there's a 
hand-in-hand partnership of sorts between what I call the the medicalization of many of the psychological and underlying mental uh, issues and what becomes the pharmaceutical treatments for them. All right, it's time to get deeper into the Sackler story with regards to OxyContin. They are trying to develop this new drug throughout the latter half of the 1980s, and eventually a second generation of Sacklers wants to create another offshoot company from Purdue Frederick, which is a drug maker that Arthur and his brothers, I believe they bought it back in the 1950s, but they want to create this offshoot to help market this new drug. They get their wish with Purdue Pharma in 1991, and uh, Purdue goes through the an application process in 1992, eventually getting the okay and the okay from the FDA as well to start selling this drug in 1996. What was the marketing strategy when this new drug hit the markets in 1996? The strategy was pretty simple because they had the aid of the FDA unwittingly on this. And what I mean by that is they were able to get something on the FDA label that was unprecedented, it had never been seen before. They made the argument, they meaning Purdue, the, the Sackler family, the executives at Purdue, they lobbied the FDA to say, look, this is the first long acting release, time release version of, of oxycodone. And therefore, we believe it will be less likely to be abused because if people won't be using it as often, they won't need it as often, so it should be less likely for addiction and less likely for abuse. The FDA said, although there was not a single study that had been done by Purdue on that, there's nothing that supported that, the FDA said, hmm, that sounds logical. And so they put that on the label that it may be, in fact, less, um, less problematic, less subject to abuse. And it was also thought that the, the coating itself, this invisible polymer coating, which provided the slow time release of up to 12 hours, although most of the studies showed it was really good for only eight, but they got enough that they were able to get 12 hours, which was their whole, what they wanted is their, their wish list. Twice a day sounds much better than three times a day. Hmm. And so they got the 12 hours approved. They, they argued that that invisible polymer coating was a deterrent to people who would otherwise crush it and snort it or inject it. It wasn't, of course, at all. Uh, but the uh, FDA gave gave them that little bit of leeway. And as a result, when they went to sell at Purdue and sent out their sales teams to doctors across the country, they were promoting it not just as a safer alternative. They were flashing the FDA label in the doctor's faces and saying, look, you know, even the FDA says less addictive. If you're looking to prescribe pain medication to your patients who come in here, why would you possibly prescribe the old instant relief Percocets Percodans, drugs like that, when you now have OxyContin, which provides more effective relief and is safer for them at the same time. And the Purdue representatives were pushing it for things for which it had not been technically approved, like arthritis, thinking it could be helpful for that. Purdue had done a study and showed no effectiveness at all. The FDA had not approved it, yet still we now know from emails from the sales teams that osteoarthritis was one of the items that they talked about. Why? Because millions, tens of millions of Americans suffer from osteoarthritis. They were talking to doctors at the VA about specializing in veterans, veterans coming back with PTSD, that it would be helpful for them, those who were in pain. They were trying to hit geriatrics and doctors who specialized in geriatric medicine is an entire group who needed it for everything from debilitating back pain so that you could play a better game of golf and go out and do it. And so they really took a painkiller that had been in its earlier iteration for end-of-life terminal cancer pain and tried to make it a much wider dispense pain medication across the board. And therein came the difficulties because, you know, you take an addictive product 
and you prescribe it for tens of millions of people as opposed to just a small number who are really in that extreme chronic end-of-life pain, and you're going to end up with the problems you ended up with with OxyContin. And, and part of the problem here, Trey, is I hear from patients, right, you know, I, I wrote in the book, uh, there's a chapter called You Messed With the Wrong Mother about a woman, uh, Marianne Skolik Perez, who lost her daughter in 2003 and became a one-woman warrior against Purdue. And there are others, Ed Bish and Cynthia McConnell and others I've spoken to since who are parents who lost their children to opioids. And as far as they are concerned, the Sacklers are an evil criminal dynasty and they want to see some form of justice. And then I get letters and email from people who are OxyContin patients today and say, by the way, I take two tablets a day and have for six years and it saved my life because my chronic pain was so debilitating. I couldn't see my grandchildren and everything else. But when I go to fill a prescription nowadays, I'm made to feel by the pharmacist as though I'm a criminal. And, and it, this, this tar and feathering of OxyContin is so terrible, this overmarketing of it, the billions of dollars that Purdue made in, in profits have stigmatized the legitimate patients, and they may be a smaller number. So I see it on both sides in that sense, but the, the great harm that we have suffered as a result of this epidemic has just left a trail of devastation across the country. Well, and that speaks to something that a recent guest on this podcast, Michael Moss, talked about in his book, Hooked, which is mostly about food, but he does discuss how there are varying levels for addiction in just about everything, whether it's food, drugs, sex, and so many other things in this world that we do find pleasurable. But I think the problem for me with Purdue is just how manipulative that they were being in the process. I mean, you just mentioned that they were going after some of the most vulnerable populations early on, but when you're also burying some very obvious information about how this can be highly addictive to certain people, at that point, you lose any credibility with this idea that you're actually trying to help more people than you are trying to hook on your drugs. Uh, absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, there are other instances with Purdue in, in 2000, the early 2000s, in which they are getting an increasing number of reports over what they have set up as an Incidents line. This incident line is supposed to be for pharmacists um, to call in if they see problems. And pharmacists are calling in and saying, by the way, you know, but uh, I just had a, a pharmacy robbed here because Purdue was marketing heavily towards seven states in this stretch of Appalachia where they knew a lot of sort of blue collar working jobs in mining and in, in, in manufacturing, engineer and all these areas where you had back pain where you had pain as a result of your regular daily job working on the grind would be users of OxyContin. And you they'd get calls from a pharmacist who said, I was just robbed at gunpoint for my OxyContin supply, which indicates to me it's being diverted to the street, or they'd get reports of adverse effects. And instead of reporting them to the FDA, which they were supposed to do for serious effects, they would just bury them. And what happens in all of this, which if you just wanna absolutely have your blood pressure boil to the, to the nth degree, is that in 2007, the federal government brings a case against Purdue um, for criminal misbranding of the drug, that they've oversold it, they've sold it for the wrong purposes, it's felonies. And Purdue, you said before, the second generation heirs to the Sackler brothers decided they'd have another company, one called Purdue and one Purdue Frederick. So now they have Purdue Frederick, the old company, plead guilty. They take the fall, fall on the knife for the guilty charge. Three top executives of the company plead guilty as well to felony charges. The company pays over $600 million in fines, pleads guilty to these felonies for misbranding the drug and pushing it out and causing all of this harm. The three executives, over $20 million in fine, they have to leave the business. And if you had come to me the day after that verdict was announced, I would have said to you, that's the end of the OxyContin story. They were caught 
with their pants down, red-handed. Uh, they've been brought before the court. These felonies were there. And it turns out that that was only the beginning because from 2008, the following year, through for the next uh, 11 years that we know of, through 2019, the drug sold most of its revenue, $35 billion in sales from the time it went on sale in 96, about $27 billion of them after the guilty plea. Uh, the Sackler family in 2015 was entered by Forbes magazine as one of the richest in America. They came onto the list at number six at an estimated value of $14 billion. Forbes called them the Oxy Clan. That was their name for them. And so you literally are talking about a one-hit company. It's not like Johnson & Johnson or Merck or another. They have hundreds of drugs in the line, and one of the drugs happens to be an opioid product. With Purdue, it's like a band who has one hit, and that's all you ever hear from them. It was OxyContin. That brought in the billions of dollars, and it came in most of it after that felony plea agreement and, and after they had signed an agreement not to repeat the same activity. So that what's truly what leaves me slack jawed is the fact that they were able to repeat it and do it even better after they had already gotten caught once. That's uh, just so discouraging, especially when you learn about such inspiring figures as Marianne Skolek. Who exactly is she and how did this one woman do so much to really begin to expose what Purdue was doing to the public in 2002 and 2003. So, you know, so interesting because when her daughter dies just at that time, her daughter turned out to be somebody who has a backache problem, not, not from a serious car accident or whatever else. And when she dies, she leaves a, a son. She's a single mother. Marianne then becomes the caretaker for that son, her gr grandchild. Marianne had been a nurse, a part-time nurse. And she wanted to know what happened with her daughter when the toxicology report came back. And her, and her grandson said, by the way, I think my mom was taking something called Oxy. Marianne knew what Oxy was because she gave it in cancer care at the hospital where she was working at and said, it's impossible. There's no way that she was on OxyContin. When she found out that she had been on OxyContin and had an overdose with it, she became a one-person army, not only investigating the doctor where it was prescribed from and later finding out that that doctor's receptionist was writing the prescriptions after the very first meeting with the doctor and, and had state officials after a few years take actions against that doctor, including on his license. But she decided, who's making OxyContin? Who's profiting from it? And it was the early days of the internet, but she found enough about the Sackler family in Purdue to become a thorn in their side. And she would show up at conferences where they had spokespeople. She would show up at conferences and write letters, and she urged the FDA to take action against them, which they eventually did in finally having them put another warning on the label. She would write to all the congressmen and congresswomen who were there who had any relation to drugs. She would constantly be harassing them. And at one point, Purdue, which didn't know how to deal with her because they knew that she had sympathy since she was a mother who had lost her daughter who wasn't an addict, nothing else. This wasn't somebody who was abusing the drug. It was somebody who had used it for one of the things Purdue said it could be used for, tended to be sensitive, and then ended up having an overdose. So they put out the word, a rumor, to the press at one of these conferences. Maybe Marianne's daughter wasn't, Jill was her name, wasn't as innocent as you all believe, implying that maybe she was an addict. And I will tell you that when that came back to Marianne's ears, she went over to one of the, the chief, the press officer at that time for Purdue. She looked him in the eye and she said, you've messed with the wrong mother. And boy, there are no truer words. She just redoubled her efforts. They had to apologize to her eventually. And she is still on them today. She is one of a handful of mothers that across the country are fighting today to stop um, what would be what I call the last travesty of justice, the Sackler family, the billionaire members of the family who were the, on the board of directors, who oversaw all the marketing and made all the money, walking away from a bankruptcy proceeding in New York where Purdue 
has filed bankruptcy. They haven't. They, they, they have a lot of money, but they would walk away by putting about four and a half billion dollars of their fortune that they've accumulated into an overall settlement. And they would get a an absolute protection and liability free in the future from any lawsuits or prosecutions. And she and others are fighting that and they hope that that will not happen. So that's what's up in the air right now as we're talking. That is so unacceptable to me, Gerald. I mean, there needs to not only be huge financial fines levied, but there does need to be criminal proceedings held for individuals at various levels, especially at the top. And that probably speaks to a larger problem going around in this country and across the world as well, that those at the very top of these corporations that are fucking a lot of other people over in the name of just continuing to make just buku bucks like they don't ever have to deal with uh, any sort of actual punishment for some of these crimes that they've committed over the years yeah you know trey you hit a nail on the head on this and i talk about this in the book i i write about there's an opioid company called incest i-n-y-s-i-s it had a, a fentanyl product that it marketed. And in that case, just last year, as a matter of fact, uh, three of the top executives, including the uh, the, the owner um, who became a billionaire as a result of that company, went to jail uh, because they were involved in an ongoing RICO criminal activity and the government proved that case. But you know what? I'm able to talk about that and cite it as the one example because it is the exception. And what happens in the, the drug industry in particular. And you know, we're in a situation now, you'll see the headlines, you open up the paper, you'll see that overdose deaths um, from opioids have surged during the pandemic. CDC data is showing this. So, you know, there's even more problems as we go along. The companies like Purdue and others, those who have made the money are accustomed to getting caught and they pay a fine. And the fine becomes the cost of doing business for them. So they made X billions of dollars, and they have to pay a mouth, you know, watering fine. We look at it and we see, God, a company was fined three billion dollars, two billion dollars, four billion dollars. Boy, that really hit them in the pocketbook. But it didn't take away all the money they made from that drug. And so, it, they get caught, they pay for the fine, they write the check, and if they don't have a fear of eventually being prosecuted in a criminal court or criminal investigations done for the worst offenders. They will never stop doing it. And I am a big believer, and I believe it in the Sackler situation. Do I know if they have made, if what crimes they have done? No, because I'm not the investigator who can get in there and see all the files the federal prosecutors can see. But I believe wholeheartedly that the DOJ and state prosecutors should start criminal investigations and let's see where those land. Because without even having the investigation, you give them a free, a get out of jail free card. Do you give any credence to the belief of some Purdue execs that the government really went after them because they were a smaller private company? Well, I think Purdue is the worst offender of the group in terms of opioid. And, I, and, and okay, that's interesting statement because it's like saying, uh, okay, I've got uh, six serial killers here, and I think this one's worse than any other. They're <laughs> all they're all serial killers. So. <laughs> Uh, there are things about Janssen's production of its uh, and its use of its opioid with Johnson Johnson and others that I think are just as terrible. But Purdue is the poster child because it was the first coming up with uh, OxyContin 96. It was the one that changed uh, the the talk about prescribing it for a much wider range. It was the most aggressive of the group. And it's also the one that was not the most successful, didn't sell the most, but was the most successful for a single family in terms of its sales of $35 billion. There is something to be said for the fact that with Purdue, you have an identifiable group of, of uh, 
evildoers in that sense. You have the Sackler family, and so you can focus on individuals with these large corporations like Johnson & Johnson or Teva or others. Um, even when you get to the distributors like Cardinal and McKesson, they are these giant conglomerates with CEOs at the top who no one even knows their name. This isn't a, you know as though you're in tech and you, you know the people who are running the companies or that. They could they could walk past you on the street and you wouldn't recognize them. It's probably the same with the Sacklers. But their anonymity in terms of a public company and the fact that they are they have shareholders and and they're diverse and they're around all these different uh, countries makes it harder to to pin a villainous figure on them. And with the Sacklers, you have not only one family controlling a small company, but they ran the board, they ran the company. And so you literally have a situation in which they aren't just the owners who are pocketing the money like the Johnson & Johnson relatives who have no say over the company, but still have shares from the way it was founded and are, are making a lot of money from it, but they don't have no say in it. The Sacklers had a say, they directed it from the top. They took the lessons learned from Arthur Sackler who died in 1987, nine years before OxyContin came out. And they put those marketing methods on steroids. His brothers were still around. Raymond ran Purdue until his death recently. Raymond's wife ran Purdue. These were the, you know, it wasn't just the second generation. So they knew how to sell drugs. They had learned that from Arthur and they decided to sell a, 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 a controlled substance this time with all the, the negative and deleterious effects that it had. So yes, they complain that we're being picked on because we're just a small company, but it's more than that. I understand why governments like to go after them because there are no shareholders to hurt other than just them. But you know what? I also think they do share, in this sense, the most responsibility. Yeah, and as you talked about a little bit earlier also, that family is responsible for creating the playbook of bullshit that is used to uh, peddle these drugs on people as well. And by the way, Americans may not realize this, but we consume somewhere around 80% of the world's narcotic painkillers while also getting charged three to four times more per pill, which I guess is a hilarious byproduct of this uh, capitalistic society. What do pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs have to do with this massive price increase? You know, it's interesting. So you say pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs, and I say that to somebody who hasn't read the book or looked into it, and they say, what? What are those? And I would have said the same thing before I got into the research. And they tend to be these, these middle companies that have inserted themselves into the drug pricing process since the 1980s. And they originally came forward as sort of the idea of payroll processors. You know, you're, you're a company, you have 10 employees or 100 employees or 1,000. You don't process the payroll yourself because it's too much handy paperwork. And so there's companies that have formed these large businesses. We'll do the payroll for you. We'll take out the FICA and the taxes and Social Security at the source, and we'll issue the paychecks directly to deposit. Fine. So these companies came along and said, hey, the growth of insurance. Look at these insurance companies coming in. Uh, now you have to deal with, uh, you know, Chubb and all these other companies like United Health and Care and that you have to, as doctors, process the paperwork that shows that the prescription was really covered. We'll handle the paperwork. That sounds like a great idea. But over time, the drug companies and the insurance companies ceded to them more power. So those pharmacy benefit managers became important middle players. They formed the formulary. They make up the list of approved drugs. So when you go on to a prescription plan, whether you're on Medicare over 65 and you're taking out a prescription plan or your health care plan that you choose under Obamacare or privately through your company has a prescription plan, you often have to see whether a drug is covered on the formulary. Is it covered at all in case you have it? And different formularies cover different drugs. Guess what? They aren't made up by doctors or the AMA. They're made up by pharmacy benefit managers because they are paid to put on those lists, not the best drugs or the cheapest drugs or whatever else, but the drugs for which they get the largest rebates from drug companies. And so it's an absolutely 
insane system because the government, federal government, does not require the pharmacy benefit managers to disclose and make transparent those rebates. So you go into a pharmacy or you get your doctor to prescribe a drug for you, and you've heard about a new drug that might be helpful for your form, let's say, of osteoarthritis, um, and uh, you say, what about this drug? And it's not in the formulary and not covered. Not because it's not a good drug and not because it might not be cheaper than the drug the doctor gives you, but because some PBM that you don't even know the name of has decided not to put it on the list. And when we talk about PBMs, Trey, we're talking about multi-billion dollar companies. They are in the top 30 biggest companies in America. It's CVS, it's healthcare. I mean, these are companies from Pemco and others that have really formed out what I call big niches in the market. And all they do, they exist only in the US, they drive up the price of drugs. And uh, when you said before, you know, it, people paid more for OxyContin prescriptions than they paid anywhere else in the world. I don't think a lot of people who were using OxyContin realize that. We pay more for the same drug in the United States than anywhere in the world because we are the only country silly enough to allow drug companies unfettered pricing power. Here, you're able to set the price at whatever you want and whatever the market will bear. Every other country, all of them in Western Europe and those in South Asia, from Singapore and others, they all negotiated some level with drug companies for the pricing. We say no, go ahead and set it at your level. So before, you might remember I talked about remdesivir, this, this treatment for COVID that gets you out of the hospital five days earlier. When remdesivir got a patent on it and put it through for that last year, that drug had been developed at taxpayer expense on a failed effort to look at, at what it might do for Ebola and later for HIV. It was sitting on the shelf. Hmm. When remdesivir refashioned it into a COVID drug, they priced it for $2,200 for the five-day treatment around the world. Only in the U.S. was it $3,300. So it's Jeez. a third higher here. Why? Because they could. And the U.S. agreed to it. So it's it, to me, you talk about fixes. One of the easiest fixes would be to say you're not going to be able to charge more for a drug in the United States than, let's say, the average of six different countries you can pick and say whatever your drug pricing is there, that's what it's going to be here. And they always say drug companies, oh, we need these high profits to pay for research and development for the future great drugs. And the lie to that is in the last 10 years, the biggest drug companies, I'm talking about the top 10 in the world, spend more on on uh, promotion and marketing and on purchase buyback of existing share, shareholder buybacks than they do on research and development. So it's a lie. They could cut back on their prices and still earn plenty of profits and still do all the R&D they wanted to. For the record, I was also unfamiliar with PBMs before reading this book, so thank you for that. And I don't think people realize how many drugs are out there that weren't necessarily being developed to treat whatever it is that they're now responsible for, what they're purchasing it for. Oftentimes, it is something where a side effect turns into what that drug then eventually targets, and Viagra and Botox are both great examples of that, too. Yeah, you know, so interesting because Viagra is, you know, really out as this, uh, what will be a heart medication or be a, an assistance on that, and they're looking at it, and when they're going through the trials, uh, they determine a group of nurses are the first to really find out about it when they come in and they uh, talking to the men involved in this trial in a clinic. The side effect seems to be that it uh, might uh, help um, men develop and keep erections for a long period of time. Now, when they first heard about that, Lily, they thought, oh, that's a terrible thing. What, that's not going to be useful at all. Then some clever person, as we talked before about the DSM coming up with ideas to medicalize a condition. So somebody inside said, you know what? 
what about erectile dysfunction? That sounds like a, a symptom to me. So erectile dysfunction became the symptom that you were treating and the side effect which was from this drug makes Viagra not into just a hit drug, but one of the biggest hits for the company ever. And you're right about Botox, which is interesting. Allergan comes up with a, a small drug. Uh, Congress had passed a law in the early 1980s uh, that was really intended to sort of, you know, the orphan drug law, because drug companies were not looking at small patient populations that had these rare neurological diseases or rare symptoms, because the patient populations were often just a few thousand people. So Congress said, let's pass this law. Good, good intent. We'll give them tax credits, tax benefits. Uh, they'll get a longer patent with it. It'll be an expedited process to get the drug approved, and they'll start developing these drugs. And they did. So it, it, the effect was good. The unintended consequence is that the pharmaceutical companies have learned how to game the system and they reapply for the same things. They get the same benefits all the time. And in the case of Allergan, they developed Botox, so this botulin, uh, you know, poison this, uh, that was able to stop people with this eye twitching and also a problem inside their throats where they were unable to stop this involuntary eye twitching. And so it's used for a very small patient population, gets approved as an orphan drug, gets all of these side benefits. And then as they had noticed with Viagra, when it was giving erections to men, they noticed that people were getting this treatment around the eyes to stop the involuntary twitches, seemed to have relaxed wrinkles. They didn't have their wrinkles as heavy. So once that word got out uh, in Hollywood and everywhere else, boy, it was, the, <laughs> it was the drug de jour. They started to use it off-label. Doctors are able, by the way, to use any drug that's approved by the FDA for any off-label use, even if that has nothing to do with the FDA approval. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And uh, and as that spread, literally, Allergan, the company, was able to have its its trials, uh, what I would call its clinical trials, conducted on millions of Americans who were willing uh, guinea pigs to see if this would, in fact, uh, you know, slow up uh, the appearance of wrinkles without doing any serious damage, side effects, or killing people. And after a period of time, Allergan said, that's great. They went and applied for it to the FDA and Botox has become one of the most profitable drugs, not for what it was originally approved for, but as you said, for the side effect that was sound, uh, found later that was then medicalized. That's just wild, Gerald. All right, we're going to end today's conversation with a question on Chapter 51, which is titled The Coming Pandemic. But this has nothing to do with COVID or a pandemic along those lines. So what is this coming pandemic and why is it going to eventually happen? You know, I, that chapter was based on a series of interviews, but mostly in 2016 that my wife and I had with a group of infectious disease doctors who were raising this red flag to us. And they said, by the way, pandemics happen every 60, 70, 80 years, every few generations. And the one that we are most afraid of, they didn't talk about COVID. It wasn't out yet. They didn't talk about a viral pandemic. They said is a bacterial infection, uh, one that is the bacterial infections are easier to spread than viruses, believe it or not, although it would be hard to imagine it being worse than COVID. They could, it's like the bubonic plague and others. They can be very dangerous. The reason we're worried about it is because we, the drug industry, might be creating it involuntarily, unwittingly, by overproducing and overprescribing antibiotics since the 1950s. And as a result, people are developing antibiotic resistance. Antibiotics are used in the water and are used in agricultural products. People get exposed to it at earlier times, even if they aren't given the drug by a doctor for a, a specific period. And drug companies have stopped 
investigating and developing antibiotics because there's not enough money in them. They're given for five or seven days. They'd rather develop a drug for chronic disease, for diabetes, heart disease, high cholesterol. Somebody takes a pill for the rest of their life. So we have fewer antibiotics at a time when antibiotic resistance is still growing. And one day when a bacterial pathogen comes out that is resistant to any form of existing antibiotics. I start the book, as you know, with patient zero, a patient who died in Nevada in 2016, where they couldn't stop a bacterial infection with any antibiotics. She's the first one in America who died like that. When it becomes more prevalent, we're going to have a catastrophe on our hands. My wife and I did that chapter and we said to each other, well, that'll never happen in our lifetime, right? Type of thing. That's, that must be what you worry about if you're the doctors involved in infectious disease. Once COVID happened, I don't take that possibility so lightly anymore. Uh, but I, I do realize that, you know, there are warning signs. We're saying we now have a viral um, pandemic that has changed the world and turned us upside down in so many different ways. And if the people who run our government and other governments don't do some long range planning to avoid the possibility of a bacterial pandemic, they should hang their head in shame because we can't, we now know pandemics do more than just the health effects on, on, on the world. It does the effects for us closing down and how it changes our lives completely. That and mental health is another issue as well, and uh, I think that's a great way to end today's conversation. He is Gerald Posner. The new book is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. It is a must-read. The paperback is out now. Cannot recommend this book enough. It gives great historical context to the pharmaceutical industry, uh, just some of what they've gone through to grow to their size today, and some of the most egregious examples of drugs that have really harmed the general public. And also some examples, by the way, to be fair, of drugs and things like that that really have helped the public too. Gerald, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful resource. No, Trey, thanks so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. Uh, I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to your listeners. Thanks to you for listening. If you're on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>